right, so please pull out the handout. We've been talking about church offices. We went through qualification texts in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for both the office of elder and deacon. We also went through Titus chapter 1 for the office of elder and the, the task of an elder. Uh, we've also gone through a number of other texts that have to do with sort of uh, the, the idea of the preaching ministry and the call to the preaching ministry. And so today I wanted to go through Acts chapter 6, as well as a number of other texts here that help us to uh, think about um, age requirements and sort of the, the difference of the roles by comparison and contrast. So we'll run through uh, a couple of things as a preliminary, and then when we read Acts 6, I'll ask you to stand for God's word. So the, I have on page 1... Uh, a number of texts you can see in the group, the first cluster. Uh, Exodus 30, Exodus 38, Leviticus 27, and then there's Numbers 1, 14, 26, and 32. All of these make reference to the idea of 20 years of age as being significant. The text that's sort of an outlier is Leviticus 27, verse 3. So that chapter, Leviticus 27, is about if something's dedicated to the Lord... You can give it to the Lord, but some things it's difficult to dedicate to the Lord in such a way that you would be able to actually give it to put into the treasury of the temple. So some of those things would be people. Um, some of those things would be lands. And so there's this idea of you can't take the land and put it in the treasury of the temple. So when you're dedicating land, what do you do? Well, you figure out a productive value of the land having to do with the capital you would expect it to produce between the time of dedication and the next jubilee year. And so you give an economic value based upon that. Um, If a person is dedicated, there's a number of shekels that you are to give instead of the person, actually. And so it gives men from the ages of 20 to 60, it requires 50 shekels, which typically you would expect the price of a slave on the market to have been around 30. Okay, so you see that this is, this is over the price of somebody's indentured servitude. So the idea of the 50 shekels is, is a lot of money uh, to, de- to dedicate. And it doesn't, there's not a reduction in terms of the productive years. Right? A 20-year-old or a 59-year-old, you have the same value. And so this is a symbolic act having to do with the dedication, not with the time remaining, but the dedication in terms of an economic value of expectation and so this is a way of, of dedicating, and the money is given as sort of a, uh, a redemption, a, a replacing. And so the 20 to 60 years is the time which generally you would expect the possibility of public service to exist. And so that 20 to 60 years, and you look at from other texts of Scripture the idea of the years 30 to 60 being sort of the prime years where a person is typically in full physical health and at the maximum of their stature in terms of honor and also in their capabilities, they're going to be sort of at their maximum. So the texts uh, in Exodus, in chapter 30 and, and 38, have to do with the numbering of men who need to have sort of a, a temple tax, a tabernacle tax. Um, so there's, there's a census that's done, and the census is used to count the men, and then you also have the amount that was paid. 
and those two match up across those two texts. So you have uh, a becca, which is a unit of measure that was used to pay the, the temple tax, and that's for every man who was 20 years or older. In the book of Numbers, you have, um, in Numbers chapter 1, the whole chapter is basically, you have 15 references to the men who are 20 years and older. And these are all the men that are able to go to war. And so these are men who are available for this public service in Israel. And in chapter 14 of Numbers, you have the men who are 20 years and older are the men who are considered to be responsible for the rebellion of Israel, and they are not going to be allowed to enter the promised land. Okay, so what I'm doing here is I'm building for you a, a cumulative case from these verses of the doctrine that we've talked about a few times, that a man of 20 is a man in Israel. He's a man who's required to engage in certain public services, and he's also a man who is able to vote as a part of the assembly. Okay, so these are uh, the categories that I'm trying to help to demonstrate. So... There's a public responsibility. There's a responsibility for war fighting. There's a responsibility for the census tax, temple tax, tabernacle tax for those men. And there's a way in which there's a similarity for men between the ages of 20 and 60. And so you see all these things being put together. Um, When we get to Numbers 26, the whole congregation is referenced, and then it further says that whole congregation is the men of 20 and up. So they are counted as the whole assembly. They, they vote and act on behalf of the whole assembly. Um, Numbers 32.11 again references the responsibility that these men 20 years older, old and above bear and how anybody at the time of the rebellion who was 20 and up and who was a man was not going to enter the promised land. And then there's exceptions listed. We're, you know, we're, we're given Joshua and Caleb, for example who are able to go in, even though they were a part of that generation in that age group. So these are uh, a collection of verses that deal with that. And you think about uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Those are sort of the key law texts here. Um, You have Genesis provides an entry into the Bible, and it connects us into the time of Moses, um, sets it up, gets it to, to, to Joseph, and sort of sets us up for Moses, prophesies about the Exodus. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Exodus is sort of the prophetic book that gives to us the the establishment of the Constitution of Israel. Uh, It gives a civil magistracy in chapter 18. Leviticus is a priestly book that lays out the service of the priests. And then Numbers is a, a book that is very kingly about the organization and administration of things and gives the rules of administration to make it so that you can have, um, sort of how things operate. And so it's interesting how overwhelmingly numbers is the one that really deals with this subject matter. Now, um, those who are counted as men in Israel, those who make up the congregation as the voting body, those are the ones who can be called up to go to war. And there's a taxation association with that. So those things all go together in the civil sphere. And in the church sphere, the men, those who are counted as men They make up the congregation, the voting body, and they're the ones that can be called upon for public service. 
and they are the ones through whom tithing occurs. So tithing, for example, goes through a household. Tithing is not to be done on an individual basis. Tithing is done on a household basis. And when you look at tithing in the scriptures, what you do is you look at the profit and loss of the household, not of each individual in the household. And so you add that up, and then you look at the household's tithe. And so that's the way that works. And that makes sense because you think about the people, you know, the, the young ones in a house that are working can create economic contribution, and yet are they supposed to, you know, have, do they have their own tax return, you know, <laughs> there's this, there's this sort of, they're, they're tracking as a part of the work of the household, so it's, it's being accounted for in the whole. So, page two, numbers four, these verses start to deal with age requirements other than the 20 years to be a man in Israel. And they start to deal with other particular offices. So Numbers 4 deals with 30 years to 50 years. It references that age seven times okay, in that chapter. And so you go through, if you read that, you'll find seven times that it references that. And what it's doing is it's dealing with sets of work that are discussed in the context. You'll have like this clan of the tribe of Levi is responsible for this set of work. This other clan is responsible for this other set of work. And here's another clan with other set of work. And it has to do with the care of the parts of the tabernacle and their movement. And so the ages for those people to deal with those items, they have to do with, they have to be in the tribe of Levi, they have to be a particular clan in the tribe of Levi, and they have to be from the ages 30 to 50. Now, in Numbers chapter 8, you have service related to the lampstand and a cleansing ceremony. And there it talks about Levites that are from the ages of 25 to 50. And so, you know, if you look online, you'll find people going, ah, contradictions in the Bible. Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 8 are written by different people. And it was just poorly slapped together by a redactor. And so these are just contradictions about the service in the tabernacle. One requires you to be 30, one requires you to be 25. The Bible's false. Game over. Let's eat chips. And so that was what you find, the kinds of things you find and the contradictions that exist in the Bible. And chips always come up, these people and their chips. And so the, the answer for Numbers 25, so the, the lampstand is a lighter and more delicate uh, piece of equipment. Um, there's something interesting that comes to clarify later on. Later on when the tabernacle stops and you just have the temple, uh, David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in 1 Chronicles 23, lowers the age from 25 to 20. And he gives a reason. He says because they no longer have to move around the objects of the tabernacle. So there's something about the movement of the goods that relates to God's intention for the age and why the change from 25 to 20 and not the 30 to 20. Because the 30 has to do with entering into a complete office, whereas the 25 is a beginning stage for training. So eight numbers 4 and numbers 8, these are, one is when you are ready to do the service, and in Numbers chapter 8, it talks about going to age 25, and what it says happens at the age of 50 is that a man can continue to do the work as an assistant, but he's not supposed to do the work directly. What's that about? 
what would you be doing once you stop dealing with the material? Well, if there are people who are coming in at the age of 25, you are training them. You are helping them to understand. While the other people are doing the work, you're teaching them to do the work. You're showing them the things. And you use the lighter and more easily handable, handleable materials, the lampstand, as the thing to do that. And so the handling of the lampstand is the thing where you don't have this same sort of limiter of age, and you also have the training process where you don't have the same sort of limiter of age. Now, I have uh, bullet points there. Um, one, two, and three. Let's look at those. So the people who are age 25 to 29, these are Levitical ministry trainees. So those are the people in training. They are a part of the set of Israel. They're only from the tribe of Levi. The category two, the Levites. These are the assistants to the priests. They shoulder the work of managing the material capital, the material goods, and the real estate. Even though there was a portableness to the tabernacle, they still had to lay it out and put it in place when the ministry was occurring, right? So they had to prepare the ground and actually set up the tabernacle to be in a place. And so then, from there, you have the priests themselves, and they're the ones who are handling the sacraments. Because remember, the sacrifices were not the actual atonement for sin. They were symbols for the atonement that Christ would provide. So the sacrifices were sacraments. They were covenant signs and seals that pointed to the real work of Christ, and they were not themselves efficacious for the payment of sins. So then, they also were to teach the word, to lay out canons, uh, rules, confessional type statements, to give rulings in judgment. They served on courts, and they were to teach, rebuke, and correct, and to train righteousness. So there's the ministry of the word, and they were to pray. Who disputes that priests were to pray? So that group, they had to be at least 30, because their ministry was a direct ministry in the tabernacle. But their trainee category they've included the 25 year olds and they were not just a set of Israel but a set inside of the Levites they were only to come from Aaron and so we have the family name Cohen associated with priests uh, that that's supposed to be a subset of the group of the Levites so first Chronicles 23 verse 26. Uh, like I said, we have David lessening the age to start the training at 20. Uh, and in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, the Levites that are doing the work of building the temple are specifically, we're told, 20 years old and up. And so Ezra, obviously, even though we're talking about a period of 600 years difference, believed that David's ruling was a ruling that he could use. And so... There's the consideration of, of the changes. And so we see at point four, those that are in training, there's a change. Now they can go from age 20 up to 29. And that increases the number, increases the time of usefulness. And uh, that's still, however, going to be a set of the, of the people of Israel. It's going to be the Levites. Then you have the Levites themselves, and they're still 30 and up for the actual functioning with responsibility uh, for that ministry. And then the priests themselves remain unchanged. So those are, we're tracking the changes across time.
And so when we get to when we get to the new covenant era, the book of Acts, okay, when you look at the gospels, okay, so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew is obviously and clearly the book focused on the kingly office of Christ. When you look at the um, the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, it intentionally tracks for him to receive the kingly office. And so it's a focusing on his inheritance through Joseph. Uh, when you look at Mark, Mark starts with the prophet John, John the Baptist. And so in Mark, that book focuses on the prophetic office. It's very sharp, crisp, clear. It's a book that is focused on the prophetic ministry. And when you get to Luke, Luke focuses on the things of the priesthood. You end up with cleansing, healing, and you have the, um, the, the focus upon the birth of Christ in terms of his relationship to Mary and the fact that he receives, uh, he, he receives a body through the line of David. Okay, so that's focused on the body, and you think about the genealogy of the priesthood and the importance of that. So the focal points of Luke are priestly. And Luke wrote a second volume. The second volume is Acts. And that second volume, the book of Acts, shows us the changes in the ceremonial law from the old covenant to the new covenant. And one of the things that it focuses on, and let me pause there, sideline, the book of John's focus is the divinity of Christ. So not on his offices, but on his divinity. Now they all teach all of these things. All four teach all of those things. But the focal point of each is what I've mentioned. Now, Continuing back in the line discussing the book of Acts, the second volume of Luke and its role to teach a change of administration. It begins and you have the ascension of Christ and you have in the temple the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the giving of gifts, and you have this, this change is occurring there. And so the temple is a major focus in the beginning and it starts to show us how the Gentiles are brought in. So... Acts chapter 4, you'll see, is, is listed there. And Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, this talks about the idea of the people starting to, look at verse 35, laying their property at the apostles' feet. And then the apostles distribute to each as anyone had need. Well, there's something here about the fact that these people are all selling their land because there's a promise of judgment to come on Jerusalem. And they're selling off their capital goods, they're selling off their land, and it's because there's judgment coming on Jerusalem. It's been prophesied. But the, the mercy ministry is something that's supposed to continue. And the mercy ministry is transitioning from the temple, the priests, and the Levites to the church instead of the temple, the elders instead of the priests, and the deacons instead of the Levites. And that's what's being set up. And so this is the change of administration that's occurred. And so there's an interesting thing that happens right after this mercy ministry is discussed in chapter 4 of Acts. We're introduced to a Levite. And you go, these silly Christians, they just don't know what they're supposed to do. They haven't been trained in the Levitical law, so they don't know that they're supposed to give their stuff to the temple. Verse 36 
and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite, pregnant pause, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the idea is, here's a Levite. He knows what's supposed to happen here with the mercy ministry. He knows about the Levitical ministry. He knows about the temple. He's been there. He knows about the priesthood. And what is he doing? He is taking his money for mercy ministry, and he's not taking it to the temple. Instead, he's laying it at the apostles' feet. So here's a change. The giving not to the priests in the temple, but to the apostles slash elders in the church. Now, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. You may be seated. So let's go to the top of Acts 6. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. So what you have here right, is an increase in people with gifting. And there are also needs that arise. right? So there's the division of labor. There's gifting and division of labor. And there's also problems. Now as you add people, you add problems. But you also add productive capacity. And so the productive capacity in a healthy church, should be accelerating faster than the needs. Dominion work and discipleship should be increasing productive capacity. And the adding of people also adds needs. So when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. 
So what we have, the Hebrews, these would be the Jews that are Hebrew-speaking. The Hellenists were the Jews that spoke Greek. And so this was a very prominent issue, which is why, for example, in 400 B.C., you had the writing of what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the Septuagint was created to deal with the reality that more and more Jews were not being taught Hebrew or not able to read it with a proficiency sufficient to be able to study the scriptures. And so the Septuagint was prepared for that reality. And you have what's called the Jewish diaspora, which is those Jews that are not a part of Jerusalem or even a part of Judah, or you might say not even a part of the land of Israel itself, but that are scattered throughout the world. Now, the Jewish diaspora had become very large at this point in history. Uh, A lot of scholars suggest that between those who were Jewish by um, genetic inheritance of the nation and those who had become a part of it by conversion and therefore joined the nation by covenanting, that that group consisted of around 10% of the Roman Empire. And so that's an enormous percentage of the population at the time of Christ's coming, a very large portion. And so you think about that, and you think about the fact that that group was largely wiped out during the time of the Jewish wars in 67 to 70 A.D., you have a huge death rate in the empire. And the persecution of Christians that occurred by the Jews was extensive because the Jews were throughout the empire and were large in number, and they tended to be prominent, educated, wealthy. That's because of the fact that the Bible provides the tools of dominion in the law, and it reforms the minds of people as you study it. And so the positions of power there. So when you look at the things that are occurring around 70 A.D., and you have the large number of Gentile converts and a large number of Jews, the proportion of the population of the Roman Empire at the time of 70 A.D., when you have the persecution against the Christians and the persecution against the Jews, the death rate in the empire of people dying from those two persecutions and war sets is huge. So... That is the context in which you have the Hebrews and the Hellenists. They're both large populations that are developing significant um, cultural influence. And there's sort of a, a cleavage a hemor- between the two of them. And so even though they would both have been uh, religiously Jewish. So these are people that are converting. They're accepting, not really converting, they're not changing religions. They're accepting the fact that that Christ is the Messiah. They're simply accepting the developments in the biblical religion. And so these are believers who realize that Christ has come and they are accepting the change of administration as it's occurring. So the Hellenists are concerned and their complaint is this. Their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists are saying, look, we have widows that aren't able to speak your language They feel like they don't know how to get the help. All the officers are basically Hebrews right now in this immature church. And so there's a problem where they're not being cared for. Now, the response is not to say, let's make a widow's ministry and let's have female ministers that deal with them. If there were ever a time when you'd expect the apostolic religion to say, 
this is the time to institute women ministers. It's in taking care of widows. And they did not. That is not what happened. What did they do? Their response is to say, verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. The multitude of the disciples, this would be that this would be sort of the same way of referring to the, the, the congregation back in Numbers, for example. So these would be the, the voting men. They summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now you can read that, and that can sound derogatory, serve tables. right? But it's not. The idea is the work of caring for widows, which the Bible has a very high view of, and frankly... The apostles have a very high view of it. James says, for example, that this is true religion. So is this derogatory? It's not derogatory. He's saying this is raising up the importance of the ministry of the word. And so he's saying it's not good that we go and do this really important religious work. Because we would be abandoning the ministry of the word. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, we shouldn't do it at all. Let them starve. No, that when you try to say, hey, we need to do this one work and we can't do it all, then that shows the need for other people to do the work. Now, some people who think that there's never a time for the devolution of authority, for example, in ordination. Like, for example, there's a group of people called the Cameroonians who were Scottish covenanters, and they went around for more than a generation having no ministers of the word. Why? How did that happen? They were a highly educated Presbyterian people. Their children knew theology better than the Episcopal rectors throughout most of England. Why were none of them fit to be officers? Because they believed it was sin for them to elect, test, and ordain their own officers since none of their officers lived anymore. Why was that? Because they had been persecuted to death. They made ordination something that was more important than the well-being of the people of their church. As opposed to realizing that the law of God, when you study it, provides the necessary exceptions to understand when you should do things that remove the ordinary order and you move to an irregular order. Well, the apostles don't have to go to an irregular order, but God gives a new order. What do they do? They say, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, when you hear that they are going to appoint them over this business, you think, ah, yeah, the apostles are the ones that ordain, the apostles are the ones that select. But I'm sorry, we should probably have read the first part of the sentence. Let's do that again. Let's pay attention. Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Who are the ones nominating? The people. Seek out from among you. Where are they getting these nominees? 
from the seminary. Where, where are they getting the nominees? From among you. Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. What kind of reputation do they need to have? Well, the qualifications listed for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. What does full of the Holy Spirit mean? Full of the Holy Spirit in the context of what's come before in Acts involves they have been given gifting of the Holy Spirit to do the job. Okay, so they've been given they've been given the gifts of the Spirit to do the job. And then wisdom. And down the line, by the way, what is going to be said is chapter look at verse five. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Right? So wisdom is the knowledge of God and the means to grow in the knowledge of God. That's faith. Faith in the word. Okay, so faith, wisdom, there are equated. So what we have is this wisdom, this gifting, and good reputation. Those are the qualifications they're looking for in these men. So, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Right, so they're saying, this will free us to continue to focus on the work that's distinctive for us. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And so then we have the list of the people that were chosen. And these are all Hellenists. And so what you have is you've got all these guys that are not Levites. They're not people who were trained in the Levitical ministry in the temple. They're Hellenists. One of them, Nicholas, is not even a Jew by birth. He's a proselyte. So the, the men, right, this, uh, this multitude of the disciples, they set before the apostles the nominees that they've chosen and then whom they have determined to meet the qualifications, and whom they have elected. Nomination, testing, election. They set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And so, there's a laying of hands on these men to set them apart for ministry. So, the nomination is by the multitude. The testing occurs publicly. The election is by the multitude. And then there is an ordination by the apostles. That is the regular, ordinary way. Verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So now, you know, earlier on we had the example of a Levite, and now as the mercy ministry is occurring by these deacons, not just Levites, but priests are starting to accept 
the new covenant administration. Many of the priests, a great many of the priests. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, notice the faith which we saw earlier equates to the wisdom and power which relates to the Holy Spirit. Okay, So this is the power, this is the gifting to do the work. So now he's got the faith and he's been given gifting. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Why is Stephen doing this? Is it because the deacon is a revelatory office? Is it because deacon is a teaching office? No, it's because Stephen is being gift, given gifting and signs and wonders to draw attention to the legitimacy of the establishment of the diaconal office. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen. You have a very similar event occur in the book of Numbers in chapter 11 when Moses is dealing with the establishment of the church office of the highest council of the 70 of elders. In, in Numbers there, there's a period of time where the elders, they are given the gift of prophecy and they prophesy in the camp. And, and Joshua gets upset about it. He runs to Moses and says, they are prophesying in the camp. He's like, only you should be prophesying. What are these guys doing? And Moses' response is, may they prophesy forever. Some translations say something like they're only going to prophesy once. It's ridiculous. It's the exact opposite. But they, they, they may they prophesy, may they continue to prophesy. And so this idea, this idea that Moses is saying, you know, Joshua, I appreciate your zealousness about my office, but this is established by God. And so the prophesying that's occurring by the elders of the establishment of the office of elder was back then. The office of elder for the church was created in Numbers 11. And it continues in the church now. Why isn't there a time where there's establishment of the office of elder in the book of Acts? Because it existed in the old covenant. And it continues. So the role of Levite ends, the role of priest ends, and you have the mercy ministry functions of the temple priests and Levites going into the office of deacon, and you have this time with Stephen prophesying and doing signs and wonders, and this is his, this is the moment, the, the sign time of the divine approval of the establishment of the office. So verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Notice that again, going back, wisdom and spirit. Right? So we have, we have these same things. So it's the wisdom and the power by which he spoke. And both of them come from the Holy Spirit. Both his wisdom and the power come from the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. Then... They secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up, they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. Wow, these are pretty big charges. 
They've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. What are these blasphemies? Verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Are these actually things that the Christians were saying? Absolutely. Because Jesus said so. Jesus would come and destroy the place. He talked about making it so that there wouldn't be one brick on top of the other. And that happened in 70 AD. And what about the changing of the customs? Well, that happened. They moved the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. They changed the temple administration to the church. There's an ending of the sacrificial system, the ending of the feast days and the new moons. There's an ending of of the holiness laws that distinguish Jew from Gentile. Certainly a change of the ceremonial law, the customs. So the temple was destroyed, and when the temple was destroyed, that put an end, a sudden end, to the days of Messiah, where there was an overlap of the Old Covenant and New Covenant. So is that what the Christians were saying? Absolutely. Why are these false witnesses then? Because they said it was blasphemy. It wasn't blasphemy. It was true. It's like when Jesus was convicted when he spoke the truth. What more do we need to hear? We've heard it from his own lips. He claims to be the Son of God. We blasphemy if it were false, but it was true. All who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And then we have Stephen giving a long explanation of the history of redemption. That's what happens in the next chapter. Now, I've given a sermon on that in the past, so if you're interested in seeing how that plays out, go look it up. But this is a significant change. The change is the change of the temple being destroyed, and the change, and that's the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesied, that occurs within the generation of the lifetime of those that Jesus was talking to when he prophesied it, and when he said it would occur within that generation. And then also, there's the change of customs. Those are the changes. So the elders, the deacons in the church, replaced the role of the priests, the Levites, and the temple in the mercy ministry. But also the priests, any part of it that's sort of a, a, a mediatorial work, that's eliminated, and there's a priesthood of all believers. And so we have Christ as the high priest and a priesthood of all believers, but there are certain functions of the priests, the sacramental administration, that is picked up by the elders. And so they don't offer sacrifices. They offer instead a service, and it's a different kind of waiting of tables than the deacons do. The deacons wait tables so that households don't go hungry. The elders wait tables so that there can be the administration of the Lord's Supper. And the deacons help in that. So, the mercy ministry transfers from the temple to the church. And we've looked at the nomination, election, testing, and ordination that occurs. And so, laying this out, my hope is that you can see the man of 20, the idea of the time of training, 
you can see the time for public office at the age of 30. You can see the office of deacon and its mercy ministry work of handling capital goods, handling the administration of things, handling mercy ministry. And you can see the work of the elders focused on prayer and the word. And I'd like to now open the floor for comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Jones. Uh, so you believe that pastors and teachers should at least be 30 or older? Yes. What are your thoughts with somebody like Charles Spurgeon that started at 16, had a robust ministry by 2022? Of course, he had that fake fire that killed some people. Do you think that was a punishment for starting a ministry before the age of 30, or do you think he was an exception to the rule? So Charles Spurgeon, I have no idea what the intention of God was with that fire, other than to say it was for the good of the elect and the punishment of the reprobate. So um, I have no idea beyond that. So... Um, as far as Charles Spurgeon goes, I think that, that him entering the, the office uh, at the age of, of his, him publicly reaching at the age of 16, entering office at a very young age, um, was unlawful. I think it was an act of sin. Um, I think that the Lord used him mightily. I'm very grateful for Charles Spurgeon. Um, I think that Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest Christians in the last several hundred years. Um, but he wasn't perfect, and he wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and he himself did not want to start preaching then. His minister tricked him into it. Um, and his first time preaching, he was actually sent out, and he was told that he was there to encourage the other person. And the other person was told that he was there to encourage Charles. And so when they got there, uh, Charles uh, preached because there was no preacher and I think in that particular instance, preaching at that moment was not sin because there was an absence of anybody fit to do it, and somebody has to do it. That's an irregularity um, and not sin. But then entering the office before the age was something that others encouraged him to do. And so I think that he was um, um, wrong to do that, but I, I also think that other people are, have a greater responsibility for having pushed him into it than, than he himself. So you still think it was wrong for him to start that early? I do think it was wrong for him to start that early. And I think the Lord was merciful in using it powerfully. And that often happens where we do things imperfectly and the Lord still is merciful to us and blesses the portions that are out of faith and out of obedience. I think he, pre he preached a lot of truth with gifting that he was given to him and, and, it, was still, and it was used powerfully. Uh, but that doesn't mean it was done perfectly. Awesome. Uh, and the next question, do, you, do we know how old Timothy was in the sense of I know a lot of people were looking down on him because of age. Do we know if he was over 30 or under 30? Or? Uh, we don't. So there's a lot of people that have actually written about this, and there's a lot of scholarly effort to try to say that he was around the age of 60, which I don't find to be, I don't find that to be persuasive. Um, but the, the people, there's a lot of people who try to argue that. Um, I would say that I, I think since he was you know, appointed by the Apostle Paul, I think that he was over the age of 30. However, he was also an evangelist, which is a revelatory office. And so being in a revelatory office, you know, God has the power uh, to, to, to give things without, he, he's above the law. And so he could have given that there. But I, I don't think that that's the case. So I think you know, a 30-year-old man is still pretty young.
you know, and, and if you're 30, 35, whatever, like, you know, you deal with 45-year-old, 50-year-old men or whatever, heads of households that are, that are well-to-do, and it's really easy for the prominent people to still look down on you as being young. Um, I've never experienced that. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry, any other questions? Oh, good, thank you. Then let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to our souls, that you would nourish us, that you would reform us after the image of the great reformer, that you would cause us to be renewed after the image of Christ, that you would transform us to be knowledgeable, holy, and righteous. Father, we ask that you would cause us to bear fruit and that you would make many men fit for public office. You have told us through your Son that there is much work and there are few workers and that we have been told by your Son that we should pray that you would raise up workers of the harvest. And so, Father, we ask that you would raise up workers of the harvest. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.